cantaloupe ultra Tuscan orange grapefruit. My God, America is imploding. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Multiplex Fan Zone Debate. Uh, this is our first match post Mayhem at the Multiplex. Uh, if you haven't watched that match yet, please go watch it. That was in part one of Mayhem. A great title match, but we're here today with a debut match, a debut singles match. We have Cameron Holtzman going up against Adelaide Spence. A couple of people that asked me a while ago if they could uh, enter the league. Thought this was a good opportunity. Uh, so winner of this will get to do something something special. We'll, we'll, we'll tell them later. So uh, on the judging panel today, We've got Cody. Cody, how you doing? So special, I don't even know what it is. <laughs> um, I uh, this is this is like I think the sixth or seventh circle of hell in Dante's Inferno. I'm not sure. Uh, things that I wish I never signed up for of watching these two argue about <laughs> against each other. Um, both arguably have trash takes at times, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, I'm excited to uh, have to. Sit with all you guys and find out how bad this could possibly get. It's true. Brian is also here. Brian, how are you? Uh, I'm kind of feeling the same as Cody. I mean, I agreed to do this not knowing who the competitors were. Um, but like the I, good I thing like is I tend to disagree with both of them on most things, with the rare exception. So I can judge just by the debate. That's fair. Yeah, I, I, I usually just send out the message, hey, can you judge tonight? Because if I say who's playing, sometimes they'll say no. So. <laughs> This could also be a retirement match because if Holtzman loses to Spence, I don't know if we'll see Holtzman around anymore. It's fair. It's fair. All right. Well, let's bring him in. We'll start with Holtzman. Holtzman, uh, welcome to Fan Zone. Uh, you are debuting now. You've now officially played in all of the leagues on the channel. How are you feeling about the match? Uh, I feel like I didn't play sports. Uh, no. <laughs> we don't talk about that. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm I'm excited. Yeah, uh, you contacted me like over a year ago, I think, uh, when you were doing the tournament in like the summer fall last year, and I was like, "Hey, I'm working twelve hour days. This might be a bit much alongside trivia." And then I kind of forgot about talking to you about getting back in, and then earlier this year we were hanging out, and I was like, "Hey, Tim, remember how I was gonna play?" <laughs> Is that still a thing I can do? And then it turned out there was only apparently one other person on the debut list. Oh, no, there's more. Just these were the two that I wanted to see. Uh, fair enough. Uh, yeah, no, I'm excited. Uh, I think these are some very interesting questions that we have here. Because uh, the thing is also, like, Spence and I talk a lot outside of this. And we even after our picks were made, like, briefly talked about, like, our picks and we both picked things that the other were initially thinking of picking at some oh point. Oh, my so, God. Uh, it's going to be interesting. Collusion. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, we'll bring in Spence. Spence, how are you feeling about the match? Oh, man. I can't wait to lose to another Kingston because I can't beat any fucking one of them. <laughs> it, it, it is funny because I think, I think I actually signed up when we're on call together, and you're like, you know, if you, if you, if you get in, you might play Holtz in your first match. Like, oh. I think it was it's the fun. same. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm excited today. I really enjoy the questions that you picked. Uh, I'm not confident in my ability, but I'm just hanging out with Holtzman, and I just get to lose. So nothing's different. Awesome. Well, here's how the show's going to work. Uh, the players uh, drafted four categories. We gave them four questions based off those categories. They are going to debate them. They will have one minute to open their argument, followed by a five-minute free form, which will then be followed by a one-minute uh, closing. Then Cody, Brian, and I will write on our handy-dandy boards who we think won that question. Uh, two out of three wins the point. First person to three points wins the match. Are there any questions from the competitors as we get started? Uh, no. I don't think All righty, so. then. Let's fight.
We are going to get started with your first question, which was in the category of Star Wars drafted by Spence. And the question is, what is the dumbest moment in a Star Wars movie? Uh, so, Spence, you drafted this. We're going to start with you. You have one minute to open your argument. When you start talking, I will come in and give you a 10-second warning. Go ahead. I think the important thing to note about this question doesn't say worst. It says dumb. Worst implies that it inherently takes apart and dismantles everything set before it. Dumb is just, why the fuck is this here? And I think truly, like, the dumbest Star Wars moment is the making of Rey being a Palpatine. Because not only does it just not make sense in the universe, it adds nothing. It is more than just this breaks everything around it and fundamentally destroys what was created beforehand. It just doesn't make any sense. It was pointlessly included to appeal to no one, make no one happy. It was studio meddling to an extent of no positive gain being there. That is not bad. That is just dumb. Holton picked something which, while is a bad moment, I do not think it is truly dumb. I think it was set up to some extent in a universe prior. It's just there and it sucks, but not truly dumb. Ray being a Palpatine is dumb and does not work within anything taught about, talked about beforehand. All right. We move over to Holtzman. Holtzman, you now have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. So when it comes to Star Wars, there's a lot of stupid stuff that happens in these movies. But specifically, there's a lot of stupid stuff that happens in Rise of Skywalker, because I also picked something from that movie. Uh, I picked the infamous Raylo kiss, uh, that moment where, you know, Ray is dead. She's no longer alive. And Kylo Ren shows up, puts his hand on her stomach. She's alive. They kiss on the mouth. He gives a little giggle. And then he dies. So two seconds after she's dead, he kisses her, and then he's dead. It doesn't make any sense. It's a thing that we are told, sure, previously in the franchise. Yes, the Force can be used to bring people back to life. But using it to not only take away Rey's sacrifice, but ruin Kylo Ren's sacrifice to bring Rey back with this little two-second kiss is absolutely stupid. It undercuts everything. It's so dumb. Just, gah, romance. <laughs> it's not really romance time all right five minutes uh free form when one of you starts talking if you talk over each other i'll beat you with a stick so be nice i i i think your basis on it undermining kylo's arc is not only incorrect it doesn't really adhere to the question he, he was on a redemptive arc literally fought the knights of ren and went and saved ray's life i think yes, there's but, but it undercuts the arc because it takes his sacrifice from being something that is fully selfless, where he is doing it for just the good of being a good person, and makes it a romance thing. It makes it not about, I am doing this for the good, I am doing this for redemption. It's, I am doing this because I love Rey, and I want her to be alive more than I am. Ky Kyle from Kylo's journey towards being a better person has always been pushed by an outside force, namely Leia, Leia and, La and The Last Jedi, and then Rey again in Rise of Skywalker, how he has always been pushed towards being a better person. Even in Last Jedi, when he and Rey are confronting in, in, in the throne room, he says, why are you holding on? Let go, because he wants someone there with him. He's never been singularly focused on being a better person. It's always been being a better person in reaction to another person. Raylo makes sense within the universe because of how much time he's spending with Rey on being but, a better person. But it doesn't, because the entire thing is kind Kylo Ren repeatedly tells Rey she is nothing. He tries to kill her. He only likes her, sees any value in her when she is with him, when she is on his side. That is not romance. That is obsession. That is doing it for your personal gain. Having them kiss doesn't forward a relationship because there isn't one there. It's him just using her for what he can. Meanwhile, Rey being a Palpatine, you say it's dumb. You say it doesn't make sense. I don't know how it doesn't. Sheev could have had a kid. We don't know. There's a lot of characters that we don't see. As well, in the new trilogy, a lot of people, a lot of people, the fans, were theorizing and clamoring, and it was being hinted at that Rey was going to be the descendant of a previous Star Wars character. People aren't mad, and people don't think it's stupid that that's what it is. They think it's stupid that it's not Obi-Wan like they wanted. It's but, not but you're agreeing. People are disappointed by it. But you're agreeing that it's dumb is the, is the issue here. And not only that, I think we have it. We have a history of bad romances in the Star Wars universe. Speaking of bad romances, if you do the math here, 
she had to have a kid, like her grand, like her father or mother, when he was old, crusty after lightning fight. That is also really dumb. Who wants to fuck crusty old, like wrinkly face sheep? That is a basis of dumb that you would deliver on, on top of okay, directly contradicting some of the best moments of the Last Jedi. But you're, the thing is, it's not. It, it doesn't have to actively contra contradict the moments of the Last Jedi. Sure, if you're saying that it contradicts the whole like you're nothing, you're the kid of no one. Have you ever thought that Kylo Ren, a villain who is abusive, tortures, and constantly degrades and betrays Rey, could have lied to her? Could have just not been honest with her for his own personal gain, break her down so that he can try to build her up and mold her into his own thing, like some sort of Barbie doll that he can use for himself? But here's the thing, like, again, if that's what he's trying to do, then them kissing is even stupider and creepier. Well, you know, again, like, the dumber argument comes with, like, him knowing is already pretty dumb, so I, I don't think that that would be a part of it. But if, if he, even if he did know, the issue there would then become, why would he not tell her if he wants because her to join her in the sin? Him any purpose. If, he doesn't do it until it serves him a purpose. He is, he is a villain. He does villainous things. Lying goes along with that. Why does he tell her? Because if you look at the scene, he thinks it will benefit him to tell her this information at that point. He thinks it will do it because it proves his point that they are a dyad in the force. He even says in the film, we are a dyad. You are the child of Palpatine. I, or the grandchild of Palpatine, I am the grandchild of Palpatine's greatest apprentice. We are the two forces that could come together and bring the Sith together. It's not stupid. He is making a very persuasive argument. It's very good. It's really not good though, because like the dumbness, the, the dumbness comes from he has no reason to know in anything prior. He is not in. He is not a part of her evolution or her journey of being a Palpatine. Palpatine fucking reveals it for no reason. One minute. It has no connection to anything going on in the background. Meanwhile, the Raylo kiss is something that's constantly set up. The reason that there are so many fucking obsessive like fan Twitter accounts over Raylo because the fan base knew and understood it was going to. Um, they knew it was happening. It's not simply bad. We knew they it was happening. Know it was going to come. They just wanted it because people want romance in whatever they can get. And it's the male lead. It's the lead male villain and the female lead hero. You see that type of romance desperate for all of the time. It's also creepy and stupid because like Ray was basically raised in the second half of her life by Leia and Han and Luke. And Ben is their actual is the actual child of Han and Leia. That's dumb. That's creepy. They're like kind of step siblings at that point. It's weird. I don't know about you, but I'm not into that. To me, this is like the semantics again, where it's like bad versus dumb. I think that is bad writing. I think it is genuinely bad writing. I think the dumb truly comes from there is no reason for this to be in the universe. It's not set up. It has no basis. All right. Uh, Cam, you get to close first. You have one minute when you start talking. At the end of the day, I don't think Ray being a Palpatine and especially the reveal moment where it happens is actively dumb. The moment is actually really good. It's made a very persuasive argument by Ben. Ben has a reason to know it because he's told it by Palpatine because the two of them are working together and have met for part of that film. He has a reason to know it as well. Things are teased that prove that Ray could be the child of someone and not just someone, but Palpatine. If you analyze Ray's lightsaber motions in The Force Awakens, they match the specific thrust with how Palpatine fights in Revenge of the Sith when he fights against Mace Windu. There are hints there. It adds up. Raylo's kiss doesn't, like, you can say, sure, there's precursor of the fans wanting it. The fans wanting it doesn't make it smart. The fans wanting it just makes it a thing that they chose to do. It's stupid because it, there's no precursor. It's literally like a toxic relationship where he has abused, tortured, tried to kill her, and is actively hunting her. And they give a romance to a couple that is entirely based on being against each other and trying to murder each other, and they destroy the end of Kylo Ren's arc, and that's ridiculously dumb. Time. All right. Spence, you now have one minute when you start talking. The idea of, an, of a negative Star Wars relationship is basically all that we've seen. We've never seen a truly great relationship, and this only builds to that because the Star Wars universe is not built for romance. Even so, Ky Ky Rilo, Ky Kylo and Rey make sense. Not only do them being a force dyad, balancing themselves, themselves in the universe, draw them to each other from a romantic perspective, they're also both there longing for connection their entire life. They've been separate and alone in the universe, finally finding someone who is there, who understands them, brings them together. That makes total sense. Dumb does not equal bad. I'm going to say this. Dumb means it does not make sense. Rey being, Rey being a Palpatine, 
It was even even when you go back to interviews, they did not know she was being Palpatine from the first two films. This one that JJ threw in there last minute to try and entice the fans, and it does not work. There is no base in this beforehand. Fans were scrounging and said, "Oh, one lightsaber move is connected to her to, to Palpatine." That does not make sense. Raving Palpatine not only dismantles the universe; it goes against everything set up prior in the other films. You were talking about ruling, ruining Kylo's arc. This ruins Ray's as well, and her being the main character it makes everything around it worse. Okay. We'll bring in everybody else. Gonna put you there. Gonna put you there. Okay. All right. Good job, guys. That was fun. That was actually a really good debate. I yeah. hate defending that movie. <laughs> I just appreciate that we got to do that in front of Brian, who likes the Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> it's, it's not like his number one film of, of all time. Like, and I will like... say, those are both dumb points. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go first. I'm gonna go Cam on this one. Um, I thought it was Spence actually started super super strong, but Cam won me over in the second half of the debate, and I thought Cam's closing was really really strong. I thought Spence kind of fumbled on themselves a little bit in their closing, but overall it was really good. Uh, Cody, we'll go to you. I'm totally shocked. Way to start the night off right. I went with Spence. Uh, I think Spence overall took the better. Uh, approach to this one because i think overall dumb or uh bad writing basically works into that thing i think the kylo thing how spence set it up was set up throughout the rest of the films the palpatine thing was just thrown in at the last minute and it was a very dumb connection and i think the waiting till the end to throw the lightsaber move in your closing and then have spence try to debate that like that's just a dumb moment because i didn't know those past through Jedi's. Time to get to I, did, I did, did not know that was a thing either. Uh, Brian this really showed me that by grabbing a plastic I, lightsaber and doing it. <laughs> Brian, um, uh, you get to decide it. You know what? I actually ended up on for Cameron. Um, I, I mean, they're both good debates, but I think it all, for me, the tiebreaker all came down to the fact that I think Spence was more debating a general plot point of the story and he didn't talk about that moment and the question is the dumbest moment whereas cameron was, was debating the actual moment of what happened as opposed to just kind of a general part of the movie all right so cam wins uh point number one we are going to move on tonight we're going to move on to the uh, second question which is in the category of actors and actresses uh this was drafted by cam the question is what franchise should Caitlin Dever join and what character should she play? Uh, so this is going to start with Cam since he drafted it. You have one minute when you start talking. So the character I picked for Caitlin Dever to play is uh, Gwenpool and putting her in the Deadpool franchise, which is now owned by Disney. Uh, so for those who don't know, Gwenpool initially uh, came out as an idea of just and a picture of what if Gwen Stacy was Deadpool? Uh, and it became super popular based on that one image alone to the point where they got uh, an entire comic about it where Gwenpool actually became her own character named Gwendolyn Poole, uh, who exists basically in our own universe where comics exist and through multiverse uh, ends up in the universe of the comics uh, alongside a bunch of other characters, uh, basically running around as though there are no consequences and being a proto-Deadpool, but instead of being incredibly vulgar, incredibly inappropriate and all that stuff, uh, she is basically committing violence and also loving rainbows and unicorns and all kinds of stuff like that. Now imagine in a world where Deadpool is now owned by Disney. We have a character who was brought in to basically be the new Deadpool for a family-friendly PG audience where she is being rainbows and unicorns and all that. Can you imagine the satire? Can you imagine the jokes? She would give an incredible performance of it. The character needs to be in this franchise. It would be perfect for the new era of Deadpool with Disney. Time. All right. Spence, you now have one minute when you start talking. Deaver is one of the greatest up-and-coming actresses we have working today. She has so much potential, and I want to give her potential. And one of the most important X-Men characters of all time, as they transition into the MCU, they need a Kitty Pride. She's one of the one of the fundamental members of the of the younger X-Men after after Xavier School is set up. She is someone who comes up and is important to the evolution of the entire franchise going forward. Not only that has an incredible place in the MCU. I'll get into it later. Gwenpool is an awful character, genuinely poorly written. Holston gave you a bastardized version of her, and I'll break that down later. But Kitty Pride is someone who has changed a lot over comics and is someone who has a long-standing place in the MCU overall who can go from Sprite to Shadowcat to every evolution of her character because Deaver is someone who I never want to stop acting and this is a role where she can act and act and keep developing as a character and an actress over many many years that's it all right uh giving up about 15 seconds um 
you now have five minutes freeform when one starts talking. Yeah, Gwenpool is an awful character. In, in my own, and like uh, in my own research of her, she had one good arc in her first ever in her first ever publication, and ever, everything since then, she has been a bastardization of Deadpool. She's not her own version of it. She's simply taken her his quirks and lost everything that made her original. You trying to adapt her gets one comic arc and nothing else. You have so little go off of. She would just become Deadpool too. See, but the thing is, that's not even the case. You still have this core character. As much as the stories may show similarities, the character still exists, the character still has those traits, the character still has a place to satirize where Deadpool is now by acknowledging, hey, we have a teenage girl who is less inappropriate, less vulgar, more childlike than Deadpool, who can do this in the Disney era. Now, I'm going to make the obvious argument here. Yeah, we've seen Kitty Pride before. We've seen it done. And frankly, Kitty Pride is a character that on screen has proven not to work. Days of Future Past, her biggest comic book storyline, was rewritten so that she was no longer the main character of it. Her only other really big comic storyline that is just about her is the uh, comic is the comic book series Kitty Pride and Wolverine, which is about her and Wolverine going together uh, and coming of age while the two of them are together. We've never seen a, su a young female superhero come of age with Wolverine before. Like, you're right. New. We've seen this before. You're undermining how important. Like, I think I think that arc is genuinely incredible. It gives a great development towards. Uh, there's a demon going on in the story, and I think goes into it another story I'll get into later. But I think Kitty Pride herself started off as such, as such an earnest place, and her presence in Days of Future Past was butchered because if you, if you read the original comic, that's not what she was. Wolverine. Yeah, but we can't. We can't do Days of Future Past again because it's already been done. We can't give her her biggest story. It's already been taken. Her, we, she only need like she, the X Men is a group of characters. You don't need to make, you, don't, you don't need to make one of them essentially the star. If you want a star, there's there's an arc in Uncanny X Men called Demon, where she is literally alien alien in uh, Xavier's school, and that is one of the coolest fucking things I have ever heard. And it stars her. That is a great Disney Plus original like miniseries or movie. The thing with Web, the thing with Webpool, which fundamentally takes down everything, is you don't need a, that character in there because then you're not being honest to her to her in the comics again she has been taken from her first arc into being discount deadpool you can make anyone else the anti-deadpool or the disney the disney personification she does not need to be there she's a bad choice anyone could fit it but she's not a bad choice and i think she is uniquely fit to do it because gwenpool is a character who goes from showing up and having this comedic sense that we've seen diva do in movies like book smart and laggies where she is this comedic force who just comes in is kind of reckless with no abandon and doing whatever she wants and then she slowly has to realize that the actions she's doing have consequences and that her brother who also gets taken into this multiverse with her is now stuck working in a crime family and has to try and rescue him are you kidding me that is an emotional arc that can give you both comedy and tragedy the biggest thing is you said it yourself in your opening caitlin deaver is one of the biggest up-and-coming actresses of the of our generation why do you want to make her one of 25 x-men and a franchise that already has 56 other superheroes well you can put her in a franchise where she would get to be the second lead get to have a big portion of the movie to herself and do her own things well they the, get the, like the 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 issue you create is not like she doesn't fit as the character you're 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 casting like, like let's say books i haven't seen laggy so you have to, like talking book smart she is not the comedic force that me she she is the straight man she is she is the one who really feldstein balances off of you're asking her to try and be comedy next to deadpool you can't have that two big characters clashing heads it does you not work in storytelling can. you have so many characters in the deadpool franchise who are doing comedy up against deadpool and they are succeeding you have blind owl who is making very funny jokes despite the fact that they in took that minutes. character and bastardized bad blind owl from her comic book uh origins speaking of which the deadpool franchise lacking in any strong female characters because blind owl was taken from a cool badass in the comics and just made to be someone who calls deadpool a bitch vanessa just exists to be killed uh or Kidnapped, uh, to motivate him. Domino has the most ill-defined powers and personality of anyone in any of the X-Men movies. Negasonic Teenage Warhead is incredibly underused. Like, Gwenpool can match Deadpool in both character and in ability, and that is what you need. I want a person who basically comes in saying, Disney sent me to replace you, and have him deal with that, acknowledge it within the film. But the thing is, you're significant, significantly overlooking Cable, who is the best person to opposite Deadpool because he is he is a straight man. He's there to balance Deadpool. The thing is, you're giving two Deadpools in the universe because at this point in, in Gwenpool's story arcs and all the comics going on right now, she is just Deadpool but female and slightly but more self-aware. That's, that's all that it thing. is, though. 
Here's the thing though. Kitty Pride is not only fundamental to the growth of the X-Men. She's important. She's, she is there for important character developments in Wolverine, Storm, Iceman, Magneto, and Emma Frost. We have never seen a good version of on film. She is fundamental to the importance of the X-Men overall and is there to push them in the MCU to the importance that they need. Time. All right. Uh, Spence, you get to close first. One minute when you start talking. At the start of this argument, I said that Deaver is someone who needs to evolve over time as an actress in this franchise, and that goes for that. Again, Sprite is someone who started off good and she evolves towards Sh Sh and, and, and Kitty Pride eventually evolves into Shadowcat, who is a more dynamic and complex character. I think that's something that Deaver can work with. Gwenpool is a one-note character we are, who exists in a Deadpool universe where she is just Deadpool and is just making different but the same kind of jokes. There is nothing there that goes on that Deadpool can't already fill, and she is a character who cannot be replaced by someone else in the universe. Deaver is such a dynamic actress that putting her in some in a character role position where she doesn't even fit the role in a universe where she doesn't fit at all it is directly contradicting not only the deadpool universe but her as an actress you are setting her back whereas kitty pride is someone who is so dynamic that deaver only deaver even is someone who could bite into this role and make it as strong and deep as it is meant to be all right finishing up 10 seconds early Move over to Cam. One minute when you start talking. I think the biggest problem is right off the gate, you are clearly underestimating Deaver as a comedic actress. Deaver has shown comedic chops in Laggies, in Booksmart. Even in her tiny role in uh, The Spectacular Now, she's really funny within those few moments. Uh, Deaver and the character also gives her the chance to do those emotional moments. The thing with Kitty Pride is you told me, hey, here's why Kitty Pride is important. Here is what uh, here is what Kitty Pride is. You did not tell me whatsoever how Kitty Pride fits into the MCU. You just said Kitty Pride is one of the X-Men. Here are some stories. No way to incorporate it. This is a thing we could do. I have shown you how Gwenpool goes in, where she fits, how she is specifically needed for the modern era. You also keep undercutting Gwenpool as a character and completely, like, just committing erasure of the modern critically acclaimed comics that she's been in. Uh, Kitty Pride rely is like relies on a lot of other characters, like you said at the end, that we've already seen. Why can't we get something new? We have the chance to do something fresh, do something we haven't seen in the X-Men movies before. We don't need another Kitty Pride. We need something new. Time. Hokey dokey. Artichoke. Oh man. Um I'm not ready. Okay. I really like that prop, by the way. It was it was awesome. I was not I'm just glad you didn't ask best diva performance because then it would have been a fight to see who gets to pick short term twelve first. Yeah. <laughs> uh Brian, you good? Cody, you good? Yeah, I'm good. Brian, you get to go first because you decided last time. Uh, while I would love to see uh, Caitlin Deaver in a Gwenpool performance, I give it to Adelaide. Um, for me, there was a couple things that that bought it. Uh, for one, Cameron, I think, was arguing a lot of you know of what they did with Kitty Pride in the previous versions, which to me is kind of irrelevant to what they would do with her in the new one. And then also, I think that Adelaide hit pretty well with uh, uh two things: one, talking about how in the comedy she's been in, she's largely the kind of the straight man. Uh, taking on such a big comedic character and also one that is largely basically playing uh, another version of Deadpool up against Deadpool would not work very well. But I mean, well, like I said, I would love to see it, but when it came down to it, big spots. Okay. We're all over the place tonight, boys, because I went with Cam. Uh, I thought that uh, Cam's uh, whole argument about um, needing a strong female character in the Deadpool franchise was a big thing that Deaver has actually shown the comedic chops in these other movies that Spence even acknowledged they haven't seen. Um, and overall, I thought the the pitch of just like bringing the the Kitty Pride character into the MCU wasn't as strong as what we could get out of this new thing with Gwen Pools. I'm with Cam. Cody, you get to decide this one. What is Cam? Fuck. Um. I'm sorry. It was this was a lot closer. This I'm was, glad we this did is this. what I felt the worst about. <laughs> the I'm glad time. we wrote the. I'm glad we wrote the board thing because what Brian was saying was like a lot of sense. Like after the fact, but like it was it was just a, basically a semantics argument of where they all fit and if she'd be Gwen Gwenpool. I don't think she could play Gwenpool personally. I think that would be a terrible decision for her to do. 
but um, I think Cam overall sold it. And I think basically, I don't think I needed to where it fits into the X Men, but it would have been maybe a nice push for you. I don't know, but you gave some estimates, but not current plans. But yeah, it was tough. It was close. All right, so we're gonna move on to question number uh, three. <laughs> Uh, Spence does need to hit this one in order to stay in the game. If Cam wins this one, it will be a knockout. So the question is, in the category of directors, what is the best Kubrick movie to watch with a group of friends? Uh, So, uh, Spence, you drafted this, so you get to go first. You have one minute when you start talking. When you think of, like, the most fun directors to watch, it's obviously Steven Spielberg, some fucking Marvel people and Stanley Kubrick, right? Uh, <laughs> he he made one of those comedic masterpieces, one of the best comedy films ever released, uh, Doctor Strangelove. It is it's a film that was only matured with age. I think it's a movie that has gotten better and better and better over time. Where you'd imagine like something made in response to the Cold War would have been lost, but apparently in modern American politics, it really hasn't and has gotten a lot worse. And it's something I think that remains very socially relevant as well as. Peter Sellers' performance, as well as everyone else in the film, had incredible, incredible roles. And it's also really layered. And Kubrick isn't a very funny writer. He's someone who writes very strange, great, great dramatic work. But his screenplay here is genuinely hilarious, both on a highbrow and lowbrow perspective. It offers every kind of comedy that you would want. And it's one of his most watchable films. And it's also relatively short. So everything going for it. All right. Uh, Cam, you now have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. So when you think of a movie that you're going to watch with your friends, there's really two classes of movies that are really enjoyable to watch with them. One is a really good movie that you have a lot of fun with that you can enjoy. And the other is a movie that is so bad that you can actively make fun of it and have a really good time with it. I picked a movie that is somehow both, which is the critically acclaimed, well-loved fan favorite and also Razzie-nominated The Shining. Uh, The Shining is one of the most iconic horror movies of all time. It has some of the scariest moments in any horror movie, and watching horror with your friends can be a lot of fun, especially with friends who have never seen it before. You get to see their reactions. You get to see how much they freak out at these things they've never seen, like the elevator full of blood, like those creepy little Grady twins, like the scary old naked lady in room 237 who turns from a hot woman into a grandma, uh, and Jack's just insane descent to madness where he's trying to kill them with the axe and go into the maze. You get to see all these reactions from your friends uh, and really enjoy your time with it, or you can just make fun of it if you don't think it's a good movie. <coughs> All right. The Shining versus Dr. Strangelove. Uh, five minutes when one of you starts talking. I really don't like your argument of, oh, it's if it's bad, you can make fun of it. It goes for any movie. I think in, the, in between this one, like I have a lot of issues with it. Namely, I don't think it's scary. I think that it actively undermines its horror with both its length and I think Nicholson's Nicholson's performance does not hold up, but I don't think your argument of all of it's bad, you can make fun of it, works for The Shining. It works for any film. I can make the same thing. I think it's black and white white aesthetic and it's old-timey dialogue and it's weird sounds like I can make fun of that too. But but the thing is, with with a horror movie, if a horror movie is bad, it becomes inherently funny because it's supposed to be scary and it's failing so much that it becomes funny. With a comedy, if if the jokes aren't landing, it's not so bad it becomes funny again. It's just boring and you're upset about it. As well, Dr. Strangelove is like a very subtle, very dry, very slow burn comedy for most of the movie. Like the first 45 minutes of that movie are very slow paced and not very full of jokes. It's not a fun movie to watch with your friends, especially with the style of humor it has. When you watch a movie with your friends, you want to talk with them. You want to make jokes with them. How are you going to talk with them when a movie is so dialogue heavy that any conversation you try to have during the movie will cause you to miss out on what's happening? Well, again, like, like the idea of Dr. Strangelove has layers of comedy. It's like, yes, a lot of what they're saying is very socially relevant, and it's like that like the hearty chuckle of, oh, I'm smart, so I get it. And also, half the characters' names are dick jokes. Literally, the end of the movie is a guy riding it like a fucking cowboy. It is dumb it is low bar comedy and it balances both of them incredibly well See, but, but that's the thing you like you're arguing that it's like oh it's this great political satire but uh, and like it's so smartly written and then you also say ha 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 dick jokes like the president's named merkin muffley congratulations your name is pubes pubes like it's not a clever joke it's just there for the sake of being there to have another joke 
Like it doesn't play into who the character is. It doesn't really undercut the character because it's such a subtle joke that you might not even notice it. I had to look it up and read that name five times before I realized what that joke was. Well, but again, again, the idea of layers of comedy, there's there's the low brow and the high brow. You're offering the same kind of argument where you're saying, oh, it could be either really scary or it could be really dumb. You can make fun of it. That's what I'm, we're both offering. There's different levels of way to watch this. What I'm saying is your other argument, your great horror and your contrast, your contrast works for any other movie. You're saying that your movie can be watched on one level in this yeah, argument. But it does not work. It doesn't work it's for not you. fucking scary. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if it works for other movies. If it works for mine, I can make that argument because it does not work for yours. As well, you're talking about all these great performances. Uh, I quote from Stanley uh, from Stanley Kubrick's biographer John Baxter in the documentary "The Making Inside the Making of Doctor Strangelove." Uh, you say all these characters are great. Slim Pickens arrived on the set, and somebody said, "Gosh, he's arrived in costume," not realizing that that's how he's always dressed with the cowboy hat and the fringe jacket and the cowboy boots, and that he wasn't putting on the character. That's the way he talked. So if I wanted to see Slim Pickens's great performance, I could just watch footage of Slim Pickens walking down the street and get the same thing. Misunderstanding does not affect the overall quality of the film. The mother from Carrie didn't thought that movie was a fucking comedy and so gave one of the greatest horror, horror villain performances of all time. I think, I think like going back to your opening statement, you said this movie is there. You can rewatch some of the classic moments like the elevator of blood or the twins or him through the maze. Guess what? Those were all in Ready Player One. You think kids of our generation who watched that said, oh yeah, this is pretty. Oh, I know this already. And they lose the thing. And I can say from experience, I watched this with friends. I showed it to my, to my girlfriend and her friends for the first time. They all hated it. You know why? Because they had seen it on fucking TV over and everything parodied did it. You would lost what is special. The Shining is so quintessential to pop culture, they don't give a fuck about it because they've already seen versions of it. Dr. Strangelove is still unique to a first-time experience. It's still unique to everyone watching it. Like The problem is, like, A, first of all, with The Shining, like, saying that other movies have copied it doesn't take away the from the fact that it's great. It's iconic. There's a reason people are copying it, and it's because people love it. It is a higher rated movie than Doctor Strange Love, according to Letterboxd. Like it is a critically more well-liked movie. As well, there's all the stories behind it that you could talk about with your friends during the movie. Oh, is there a part part that's dragging? Cool. Let's talk about the fact that Kubrick hid hints to the fact that he could have faked the moon landing in this movie. That's something interesting that makes it interesting watching with your friends. The other thing is with Doctor Strange Love is like you pointed out. It's very political, and it's almost too real nowadays. Like it's not a it's not a relic of a bygone era. There's in the past few years. I don't want to make this extremely political, but people got kind of sick and tired of watching idiots be. We were in another Cold War. <laughs> Like and, and like I I understand like but you're saying like oh we could take moonlight it's the same atmosphere as the guy's like hey did you know did you know that Viggo Mortensen broke his toe kicking the helmet in two towers it's just there nothing fucking happening you're an interesting fact I also it's I also your your fucking Razzie argument bugged me so much because it's like saying a bad movie is there you can make fun of it it doesn't work any movie can have, because it was it was only for Razzie for attention yeah, what's wow. the for yours keep the politics out of it uh, I but I had to. <laughs> Just saying, you'll get vetoed. Uh, who this is Holtzman closing first. I had to think about it for a second. Uh, Holtzman, you have one minute to close when you start talking. At the end of the day, part of the joy of watching a movie with your friends is being able to interact them while you are watching the movie. Dr. Strangelove as a film is far too dialogue-based that you cannot talk and joke and have a conversation with your friends while you are watching it because you will miss things from the film. The Shining is not inherently dialogue-based. It is a movie that you can get by on visuals because the visuals do a lot of the heavy lifting. They give a lot of the horror of it. So you can have these conversations. You can talk with your friends. You can enjoy it. Uh, you have this rapport with your friends that you can get by with. You can see all these iconic and legitimately scary moments, like the elevator, like the chase through the maze. Here's Johnny is an iconic moment. Seeing the absolute terror in Shelley Duvall's performance is incredible. It's fantastic, and you can watch it, and you can enjoy it. With Dr. Strangelove, there's just so much going on, so much back and forth, that if you and your friends lapse in your attention on it for even a second while talking, you will lose where you are in the movie. You will lose what you are doing, and it just will not work to watch with a group of friends if you're trying to legitimately have fun and not just sit there. Time. All right. Spence, you have one minute when you start talking. 
as America trends more political and educated, a movie criticizing those modern issues can still remain interesting. Not, 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 not to bring politics into this, but it's a movie, it's, it is a fear that we still live with and remains inherently engaging. And even beyond that, there are better horror films to watch with friends. The Shining is both uninteresting as horror and as storytelling. You say there's, there's dumb ones to talk about it. Just because, just because you put, a, put on a movie that's two and a half hours long does not mean the, uh, your argument is better because there's more time to talk about it. If you want to put on a horror film, put on something more interesting or more scary. If you want to talk, don't put on a fucking movie. You're not saying you want to watch a film. You want to watch highlight reels that, again, are parodied in every other piece of media. You are not watching The Shining. You are talking to friends and watching a highlight reel. I am offering you watching Dr. Strangelove, which is a film like, if you do need to pay attention to it, it is still funny, again, to every level of human being, as well as, again, it is educated from, from a political perspective. It, it adheres to a lot of the reasons you would get together and watch something as a group. The Shining is not something that you would watch together, because, again, you're undermining your argument. You're not watching You're not watching it. You're talking to it. Time. All right. Huh? Sorry. You're good. <sighs> Sorry for mentioning the word politics. No, it's fine. It's a political film. It's hard to avoid. <laughs> no, I... I just meant, like, yeah, we'll talk about it. You that. can talk about the political aspect, but when you go in, just like to see, we just try yeah. to avoid that. It's movie trivia. Um, oh, God. Um, I'm ready, by the way. I'm not. I'm going to. I'm going to be on the wrong side of it, too. It's not a big deal. I normally am. I always feel like I'm on the wrong side of it. Yeah. Whoever wins, we lose. Alien versus. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Cody, you get to go first. No, yeah, yes, yes. I decided. Yes, yes. Um, so I felt like this was just a bunch of bullshit conversation, and these are like two people I never want to watch movies with ever because apparently y'all just want to fucking chat the entire time. So why are we putting on a movie? Um, but this did raise the question: we should have watched Still Alice in Wisconsin, uh, um, Kim, uh, because movies that don't work together as a group. I overall think this whole conversation was. I think there was a lot of things used for the film to like the outside stuff, like the Razzies and stuff like that, to sell it as two different things that you can do. But I feel like Spence kept ran, uh, hammering it home. But that you can apply that to any movie possibly and say you can have fun and thing anyway. So I went with Spence because I think Spence overall explained why the stuff will work together as a film. Even if the comedy doesn't work for you, the horror might not work for you. There's a lot of elements into there that work. And, um, yeah, and I think the driving home of sitting through the entire Shining would, you know, as a friend, might not work either. Brian. Uh, so I'm here to listen to people bash Star Wars and praise Kubrick. I don't know why. I'm <laughs> um, uh, so, so for this debate, this is probably the closest one for me. Um, I did end up voting for Spence. Um, <laughs> the reason being that uh, I think that... Uh, I think that the tiebreaker for me, uh, Cameron kept trying to hit home uh, how you can't watch it with your friends because you'll be laughing and missing out on lives. And, and the whole idea that you can't have fun watching a comedy with you know verbal dialogue jokes with your friends seems ridiculous to me. So they kind of lost me with that part. All right. My vote doesn't count. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much, but... First, 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 clean, first clean sweep of the night. So uh, we're going to move on to the final prep question. This question is in the category of DreamWorks. This was drafted by Cam. The question is, who is the best side character in the How to Train Your Dragon series? Uh, Cam, you get to go first. You have one minute when you start talking. More than anything else, the How to Train Your Dragon series is a series about growth and redemption. And there is no character, no character in the franchise who exemplifies this more than Stoic the Vast. Uh, Stoic, for those who don't know, is Hiccup's father. Uh, and in the first movie, he begins as this gruff, stereotypical, manly Viking who wants to kill all dragons and wants his son to just be the next version of him and change him. But as the films go on, he has a wonderful, marvelous arc of growth as a person, as a father, as a leader of a village, where he learns to not only accept his son for who he is, but accept that dragons aren't all that he thought he is, accept that he needs to change who he is, as, that he needs to grow and change as a person and become better for everyone around him 
to make the world a better place and make it what it needs to be. Uh, he uh, has this just beautiful arc. Uh, he has a strong conclusion to his character within the films, as well as a great cameo in the third one, uh, as a plus suspense's character. Time. I don't even remember who Spence picked, but that was funny. Uh, Spence, you have one minute when you start talking. Well, it's been pick, Hiccup's mom, or dad. I picked Hiccup's mom because I think at the end of the day, Stoic's arc as a character is one that we've seen copied a lot across media. His overall change is not only predictable, it's just sort of expected. I think that Valka, her, her role in two, the best film, is inherently interesting because it proves that not only is Hiccup not the only one in the world who sees the good in dragons, she has helped nurse them and she has helped create like this vast world because in the beginning we thought like oh they're here and they come by every now and then she she fosters a colony of dragons and having to take care of all of them and see how each one of them i think she expands the dragon universe more often than not like just like that that is her big addition to the universe i think that stoic is a character who we knew how he was going to end up from the start of the film and it expected and then we both feel like a movie happened to them he just fucking died uh volka at least she got she saw she saw through the third film we got to see more of her develop so it made one final sacrifice and we just sort of lost him from there time wait stoic dies no i'm kidding i've seen the movie uh okay five minutes free form movie early enough <laughs> All right. Okay. So uh, I'll let you go first. All three debates. So I'm going to start first on this one. Uh, you say that Stoic dies partway through How to Train Your Dragon 2 and Valka at least sees it through to the third one. And that Stoics is an arc we've seen. Well, Valka's arc from number two to three is her going from really cool, badass, I save dragons to, hey, what if Snotlat wanted to bang to bang to uh, Hiccup's mom and really nothing else going for her character? She is completely undercut. She goes from being in the second one supposed to be like the greatest dragon trainer of all time, the greatest dragon rider of all time, to she goes on one dragon riding mission, gets her ass absolutely handed to her, which we don't even get to see the fight, and then returns home to be the motivation for the characters. Her arc is completely dissolved, and her character is brought to nothingness other than just being hot mom. I, I think the issue is like like the hidden world as a film doesn't really adhere to a lot of the supporting characters. It is mainly just hiccup and toothless journey. My issue becomes I don't think that Volka is this legendary one of the greatest characters ever made. I think you are overestimating Stoic's value as a character because at the end of the day he is a, he is a he's a he's a hard gruff father who can't get with what is with what is with what his kid's doing but then changes mind at the end that is the plot of every fucking coming of age movie ever made you're not picking an original character you're picking you're picking an insert to propel the story i think volk is like addition into he's, he's not just an insert to propel the story he is integral to the franchise because if you think about it he's borderline like the villain of the first movie for most of it toothless wants hiccup wants to grow with this dragon wants to raise it wants to train it and wants to be this who is the number one person who is against him in that pursuit it's his father who wants him to become this dragon trainer it's not just about who what stoics arc is with him growing which is great but it's also about how he affects the other characters within the franchise and the fact that he is a driving force behind everything as well in how to train your dragon 2 obviously there is one big moment for both of these characters and it's when they reunite and let's be real here stoic steals that moment from valka valka stoic you're as beautiful as the day i lost you is incredible it's hard to remember even what valka says in that moment like okay, like I'll I'll give you I'll give you like that's a good line, but I, I, again I don't think Stoic's character is one that is her- inherently interesting. Like like again the question is who is the best who is the best side character? I think that Stoic is a character who is not great. He's not good. He is just there. He's he's someone who occupies a role in a lot of storytelling to the point that I have a hard time getting invested even in his death because I genuinely don't know what he adds to the universe. Whereas Valka is fundamental in the evolution of it as a franchise going from a singular film to one of the most interesting universes created in modern storytelling stoic is just there to fill a role in every other film see but he's not and you say what is his role in the second one other than to die his role and even with his death is to stop toothless from killing the one person even more than valka who believes in a joint world between humans and dragons valka isn't about a bond between humans and dragons valka is about dragons being kept separate and being kept away from humans to the point where in original drafts valka was supposed to be the villain and they changed it because they thought why give her an even more interesting character when we can just make her the mom? Like, like she is there, but 
stoic sacrifice you're making to be meaningless as though it's not him stopping Toothless from committing the most unforgivable act that Toothless could commit, killing the one human who gave dragons a chance and showed everyone that well, they could belong. Well, one, it wasn't even Toothless' choice. So you're, you're, you're taking agency out. You're taking, you're giving him agency. Toothless still did it. The, Toothless the other still thing, did it. The other thing, though, is that if anyone could have done that, that is not singularly singularly stoic. Other characters, na namely Astrid, even fucking Gobber, or Valka even, could have done that. Nothing like stoic doing it is not singular to his character. They simply gave it to him because they didn't know what to do with him for the rest of the film or even for the third well, film. She, he, he's a character who has whose usefulness in the story ends in the first one, and he is there in the second one because they don't know what to do with him. Valka is a character who, the same issue comes with her in the third, but I think she is more important to the overall universe and more interesting as a character. Stoic's just there. Like, you can't say they didn't know what to do with Stoic in the third one, because the thing is, Stoic still makes an appearance in the third one. He makes that small cameo in the flashback sequence, and it gives us so much... It gives us so much backstory to who Hiccup is as a person, and to who Stoic is as a person, where you see Stoic giving hiccup the sense of wonder the sense of belief the sense of magic but still it's twisted in his mind where he gives toothless the idea i can go out and find all these or hiccup these ideas that i can go out and find these dragons and stoic is i can go out and find these dragons and kill them you have him going from villain to hero committing the ultimate sacrifice being this incredible character whereas valka shows up and is disserviced by the franchise itself as it goes on time okay um, Spence, we're going to start with you. You have one minute when you start talking. Holtzman's original pitch the opening of the opening of this argument is this franchise about growth and redemption. I do not feel like that is true. I feel like Hiccup as a character is not has, it did not redeem anything. Stoic's inclusion in that and his contrast to that is the only part of that franchise where it applies. And even then, again, I do not think it is wholly interesting or even necessary to the universe. I think he is he is a, he is a he is a token dad character who you've seen across many other coming of age films and even most other films outside of that genre. How Train Dragon is a coming of age film, and and Stoic is someone who doesn't add to the narrative whatsoever. I think Valka is someone who, as, as we've seen for How to Train a Dragon, expanding from not only to the books to these movies, but also Netflix series and other adaptations, is someone who is necessary to the evolution of this universe. Everything that Stoic does in this does not need to be from him. He's a character who was, who was there, and simply they, they, they conglomerated all these different story beats into a singular character, which does not make him interesting. It makes him useful. Valka is someone who is interesting everything she does. Even if, and even if she gets one less film of development, she still does more in one film than Stoic does in two and a half. Time. All right, Cam, uh, you have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. So the biggest problem with your argument is you keep saying Valka does these important things. Valka is a game changer. Valka is doing all these things, but you're not really giving specific examples. You're just saying, hey, she is introduced and sure there is this world around her, but there's this world around all of these characters. Dragons inherently exist around everyone. And as for your argument that uh, Dean DeBlas saying it's not about redemption is false, it's not. I can quote uh, with an interview in EW in 2019, he states that he even put uh, Drago Bloodvist's Bewilder Beast into the hidden world uh, so that he could show even the most evil killer dragons could be given redemption. Anyone, human, dragon, whatever, can be given redemption. And that is what Stoic is about. Stoic is the heart of the franchise because he is the character that gets the redemption arc. He is the character that goes from bad to good and goes from the ultimate bad of I want to kill all the dragons to the ultimate good of I will sacrifice myself to save not only my son, but to save the relationship between him and a dragon that can save everyone. He is the most important. He is the best character. All right. Bring in the judges. And once we're all good, we'll get started. Brian, you good? Yeah. Cody? Okay. Um, first, there was Nick Tuig and the Star Trek. There was Robert and the Middle Earth. There was Kirk and the uh, Romero. And now I think there's Cam and the How to Train Your Dragon. I thought he did... A, a great job. Um, he ripped Valka apart uh, for me and completely uh, sold me on why uh, Stoic is the best option here um, across all three films, even in his small role in the third one. 
and uh, Spence couldn't really get anything to me about why Valka was better. So, um, Cody, we go to you next. Yeah, Cam, if Cam plays more, Cam's going to learn that not all inside baseball stuff that he knows about or can find on the computer is valid to bring up and matters at all. All um, research. <laughs> uh, called, I, as judge, don't give a fuck. Um, but I went with Cam uh, because at the end of the day, and by the way, Spence, if it was up to me, we'd be tied. Um, but in this one, it was just too close, too, too much information, too much. And honestly kind of painted his mom as a bitch and like couldn't get shit done so that kind of sucks for her because i actually like the mom as a character but now i have to second guess like damn maybe she's not as good as i thought she was and brian where would you have gone uh for me it was decided fairly early uh for cam um and that was because i, I there's one point that he think he hit real well is that uh stoic kind of had this arc and this growth from one to two whereas uh valka like was great in two it actually got worse and less important in three. It was kind of a downward trajectory. And I don't think uh, Spence ever quite recovered from that. All right. So your winner is Cameron Holtzman. Uh, we are going to start by talking to Spence. Spence couldn't quite get there today, but you actually played really well. There were votes for you on uh, every question, but that last one, you were the only sweep of the night before that one as well. So um, impressive all three, I felt uh, the first three were very, very close. You did a great job. How are you feeling? I mean, I, I knew this game was going to come down to the deeper question. I felt very confident in that and the Kubrick one. It just so happened that I didn't get to like a, a critical point. I I was not winning this argument. I knew that I knew that had a dragon. I was out of it. I needed to do better in, in the other three, and didn't come to my didn't didn't come to fruition because Holtzman is an insane researcher, as I figured out. Yeah. Uh, Spence, this does mean uh, that you won't play anymore this season, but we will see you next season. Um, is there somebody that you want to play to try to get a win on the record? I want so I, I enjoy debating it someone I know because I, I can at least like predict what they're going to say, but also like know that no bad blood will come. So, like, how about like Nico? Maybe like ex teammate could be good to just like ham it out. Uh, we'll see where the rankings are at by the end of the season, but that's a possibility. <laughs> it's a possibility. I'll never yeah. say never, but uh, Spence. We'll see you next season. Great job today. You did well. Uh, let's move over to Cam. Cam, you won your first match, and uh, in a pretty uh, dominant fashion, three to one. Very good game. How are you uh, feeling? Uh, yeah, I feel good. Uh, I definitely was like I was excited for this. I prepared for this. I knew it was not going to be easy uh, because uh, Kubrick, the Kubrick question and the Deaver question were the two that I was sort of worried on. And luckily, I managed to pull one of those out. Kubrick was a crapshoot uh, and didn't work for me, but uh, we gave it our best shot. But no, like, yeah, How to Turn Your Dragon is a thing I love, and I picked it. Uh, and then that question came up, and I sat there going, don't let Spence pick Stoic. I need Stoic. That's the only character that I truly believe is the correct answer to this question. Uh, and I got very lucky. But no, uh, this was great. This was a lot of fun. Uh, I'm excited to play again. Uh, I would have picked Narnia, but there's only two of those in fandom. Uh. That's fair. That's fair. Um, so uh, I don't want to say on air who you're playing next, but you will be playing um, somebody else coming up soon. Um, you're a couple mat. You're three mat. Two matches. Two matches away. No, I'm sorry. Three. I was right the first time. Three matches away from an under number one contenders match. So uh, you're starting to get the things rolling. Um, how are you feeling about just fan zone overall and what's next? Uh, yeah, I'm excited. Uh, long ago, there was a different debate league I was supposed to play in, and then my match got canceled, and I was sad because I was ready to stomp someone into the dirt. And it's fun to have that opportunity again sometimes where I just get to take all of my rage in movie discussions and have a functional outlet where I can just spend an hour releasing it for the week or the month however long uh between matches it is and just purging all of my rage about certain things and getting to yell at someone uh i, I rewatched clips from rise of skywalker for this <laughs> that's fair that's fair well cam we'll see you soon uh sometime next month for your next match so uh congrats on the win we'll see you soon final thoughts from brian 
Um, I thought it was a super close debate. I think my votes, I think, got split two and two on the, on the different categories. So, yeah, it was, it was a really good debate. I know that Spence, uh, from the beginning, seemed kind of uh, not very confident, um, but they clearly managed to uh, stay in the loop there. So, you know, it was closer than they thought. And uh, Cody, what about you? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Spence plays a different person. I think they can be 1-0 right now. I think they played super well. They prepared. Again, you never know when people say they want to debate and then they come in and you see actually what could happen. Uh, they both prove that they are great additions to the roster. The interesting thing for Cam moving forward, he, did he burn How to Train Your Dragon too early? Will that play out later? Like, There's different things that will play on his title run to get there. So um he probably has a strategy behind it but you know that's an interesting uh take on the very first your very first match so we'll see how it all plays out but uh yeah this is a great debate awesome well that's gonna do it for us today at fan zone thank you guys for watching we'll see you guys in two weeks with another match we've got coming up uh nazario montenegro stepping back into the ring and he's going up against the aforementioned uh nico suave regoli so that's gonna be uh very interesting can't wait to see that one cody's so excited to be there so uh we'll see you guys real soon have a good one Asshole. that's my bad i was sending a tweet